Well, welcome to another edition of Our Outside View. On today, I'm speaking with Rebecca Rial, who is, well, she's a very successful person. She went to IU. I'll let, I'll let her introduce herself and tell you about herself in a second. But she's a, a, a social cultural anthropologist and went to IU. And I met her when she was a student here. But she did a lot of things in... Um, she did a lot of uh, things while she was here in Bloomington, contributed to the community quite a bit, and and contributed to IU. So I'm always glad to touch base with her. She did move away, like so many people do. She now lives in Louisiana. Um, but Rebecca, welcome to our outside view. Well, thanks for inviting me on the show. Well, it's it's I couldn't have a show without talking to you. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, a, thank you. To tell That's people. An honor. Tell people a little bit about what you've done and, and what you're doing now. Okay. Um, my name is Rebecca Real. I'm from the Cherokee Tribe of Northeast Alabama. I am an attorney in Louisiana. I'm also um, currently closing down my practice, actually. I've taken a full-time professorship at Northwestern State University. I think I'm probably mandated in that contract somewhere to say my views don't represent the university. Because <laughs> they probably, they may not. <laughs> but um, that's what I'm doing now. I'm teaching um, teaching various classes. Well, you are a social cultural anthropologist and you're teaching criminal justice courses, correct? Yes, ma'am. Now, your law practice, you were practicing indigent defense law. Are you still, yes. are you still going to be doing any of that or are you just too busy? I know being a faculty member is extremely busy. Well, um, to be honest, I'm kind of closing it down because the overhead with the law office is really high. So just keeping things like your insurance and your um, your your CLE is going, it's just kind of expensive. So it's prohibitive to do that and teach college in Louisiana because our pay is not super high. Well, you are also licensed to uh, practice law in Indiana, right? Yes, I am. I've let my license there become inactive, but I am licensed there. So that means that you could come here and represent somebody in Indiana. Yes, I just have to reactivate with the Bar Association. Now, what kind, what kind of... Um... Oh, cases, incidences did you have while you were in your in your private practice there? Well, um, I had some kind of a variation of things going. I had a public defense contract for most of the time I was in private practice, um, but I also had to have a actual private practice to help subsidize my public defense. I don't want to call it a hobby, I guess passion. I don't really know um, how to refer to it, but it was it's addictive public defense. I love it. It's a really great chance to defend constitutional values and defend people who are often very vulnerable and haven't had somebody in the system listen to them before. Um, to, but to do that, I had to also practice divorce law and a number of other things. I, I love working on all, all my clients, but public defense was definitely the, the main passion for me. That's interesting. You mentioned all the constitutional constitutional law, because that certainly has come under fire in this uh, current administration that we have. Um, who's trying to change everything. I'd like to reminisce just a little bit with you while, while we're talking, because um, you are somebody that I actually miss interacting with around here on a local level. Um, I miss interacting with you too. I miss organizing with you guys and, and raising the hell with you. Yeah, well, we did do a lot of things, and especially you did. I have to tell listeners that Rebecca is one of these people who, you know, she says she's going to go to law school, and the next day she's in law school. And then she says she's going to, you know, have her law degree and, and in Indiana, and she has that. And then she's going to move, and, and she has also her law, uh, you know, she's licensed in another state. She also said she was going to start a, um, a Native American center in Bloomington, which she did. 
Um, and then she contributed a great deal uh, to establishing the Native American Center at IU. If you would talk a little bit about the experiences of doing those things, that would be great. Okay, well, um, and actually I have to say, um, just uh, you were very involved in that as well too, too, Helen, especially with the center on campus. Uh, there was a group of graduate students. Initially we were um, assisted and, and guided and until, well, actually a lot of work was also done by Professor Wesley Thomas. He's a Navajo anthropologist and he was at IU for a few years and he really showed us how to organize and be activists around creating an American Indian Student Center on campus. Um, after he left, um, there were some other graduate students and I who kept that fire going and we pushed and eventually um, the university did open a student center that was supposed to be for American Indians, uh, Alaska Natives and Native Hawaiians on campus, uh, the First Nations Educational and Cultural Center. Um, I, think, um, I think you might give me a little too much credit with that though. There was a bunch of graduate students and undergraduate students involved with that as well. Uh, people who kind of came in and out as well as a core group. And you were definitely part of that as our advisor um, for the Native American Graduate Student Association, which ended up doing a lot of the legwork and the, the grunt work to, to get that started and, and to get that going the first couple of years. Although I understand that IU history doesn't acknowledge us as having done that. No, they don't really. I don't, I think. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned, Wesley Thomas, he was just somebody I absolutely have. Well, I absolutely have ultimate respect for him and admired him and loved working with him. And, you know, also he, he was involved with our radio show that we had and I, I miss him. And he was the one I thought, surely when we have a center at IU, he will be the director. I was absolutely stunned when they picked someone else and I don't blame him for leaving. I think he was a big loss to the university, but I'm sure they probably don't see it that way. Um, well, I think it's interesting and telling that as far as I know, there are currently no federally, uh, um, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll take that back. There are no citizens of federally recognized tribes who teach at IU full time. As far as I know, not at IUP, there are at IUPUI and some of the other campuses. But for a time there, there were several American Indian faculty members, and it, it raises some questions about why they all left. Um, but just to give you a little history of what happened with the center, I don't know how much you want to go into that, so feel free to cut me off. But No, that's fine. When we initially started, um, we were told that it would be run as the other cultural centers on IUP campus. So for listeners who aren't familiar with IU, there's a Black Cultural Center, an Asian Cultural Center, a Latino Cultural Center, and um, in the GLBT Student Center, although I think the name of that may have changed since I was there. Um, so there were all these centers on campus um, for years, but there was no center for American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian students, Indigenous students. So um, when I first got to IU as an undergraduate, there was an American Indian Student Association that was active, and we had this tiny little office that another program, the McNair program, had just kind of loaned us because they were really cool people and they were trying to help us out. But over the course of me being an undergraduate, graduating, we kept talking about, well, why don't we have a center for Native American students? It's clear that Native American students are not being recruited and retained in a proportionate rate to the proportions in, in Indiana. So we kept that in mind. And eventually, um, I think it was maybe my second year of graduate school, there was a really big rain and the little basement office where we had all our precious things, the evidence that we had ever existed at IU, posters, flyers, um, agendas, meeting minutes, letters, all this kind of stuff. Um, a lot of it was destroyed because the office flooded. 
So we got out what we could and salvaged it. And we thought, well, you know, this is a chance to really call attention to where we're at. We did a press release to some newspapers calling to start a First Nations Educational and Cultural Center. And I think it was um, graduate students um, who, who wrote the press release. But then, you know, also we had that guidance from Professor Thomas as well. And eventually, after some time, the university agreed to create the center. It was given a couple of dorm rooms in Eigenman, which is a, I guess, an, a, I don't know if abandoned is the word. It was no longer a dormitory. It was a decommissioned dormitory. And um, we were not given a director. We were told that the students and, um, and a couple of faculty members we had brought in who were also American Indian would be running things day to day. But actually, we didn't have any control over the budget. Um, we had to go through um, a very non-responsive administrator at IU to try to get anything done, even as far as the lease event. Um, we had one set of keys that we were allowed to share, and eventually um, they changed the locks in the center and didn't let us know ahead of time. Just uh, we got there one day and couldn't get in. So it was a pretty frustrating process. Um, a lot of the steering committee resigned after they locked us out. We did some news releases about that, and at that point, I think that they were realizing that it was bad press for IU, you know, showing that IU was not fulfilling its promise to American Indian, Alaska Native and Native Hawaiian students. So they appointed a temporary director who was the director of the uh, La Casa, the Latino, Latina Cultural Center. And I think she was there for a year. Um, for one year, they hired a graduate student, Joe Stallman, Tuscarora, great guy, the only uh, federally recognized tribal citizen to ever direct that center. He was there on a temporary basis for a year. Um, then they brought in uh, another gentleman who who had some claims of Indian ancestry, but as far as um, as far as I know, was not actually enrolled in a community and didn't really grow up in it. So he ran it for a while, and then they ultimately hired um, a non-Indian to run it, which was pretty distressing. Um, I I think IU's argument was that it would be discrimination to not open the position to people of any race. However, we know for a fact that people who are qualified, who were American Indian applied, who I would argue were more qualified than the current director, but he's been there for a while. Um, so that's where that is. Uh, I think it was, it was really devastating to all of us. It's hard to imagine the Black Cultural Center being run by somebody who was not Black or the, um, and who just liked to kind of dress up in African or African-American styled clothing which is sort of the sense I get of what happened at IU. Well, you know, I was, I was thinking about that because the Black Culture Center, when it first opened, they hired a woman who actually I was friends with that she is, she's an African woman. And although she'd lived in the States for quite a while, she and her husband both moved here. And there was a lot of opposition to her running the Black Culture Center because they said she couldn't relate to being Black in America. And I was on a committee with them uh, and worked with her trying to organize events and bring bring, uh, you know, African-Americans and Africans and everybody together. And it really didn't work real well, not because she wasn't a good person or didn't try. It's just that there was so many differences. And I, I actually understood the distinctions and the differences. As there's an African student association on campus and they do things separately. And um, I don't know if they're, you know, but they finally did hire uh, a black, black woman, an African-American woman to run the culture center. Um, and I think, I, I think they're not, maybe because there are, I know that the population of black people on campus is still low percentage wise, but I think that a little more power and influence. And I think, um, I think probably there just aren't enough 
Native Americans here, enough people speaking up about it to make a difference because they still have a powwow every year. It's down in Dunmeadow, um, which is, you know, a, a, an open, as you know, an open gathering place on campus. It used to be a place that was a, that they were allowed to have demonstrations and things over the years. Um, and I'm not even sure they allow that anymore, but they do have a powwow there, but it's not promoted, not advertised like it used to be. There's just, you really don't hear much. The only reason I know anything's going on is because I'm on their, their email list. And uh, so, you know, I, I'm notified about a few things going on, but it's, it's very depressing. And another thing I think that was very depressing that for me anyway, was when you and Dell and I were talking, and Carol, we were trying to start that French and uh, Native um, film. We wanted to do films and travel logs and things like that. And oh, yeah. Film histories and get that off the ground. And we tried to have the show on WFHB. And yes. they just really wouldn't even hear about it. Um, which Oh, yeah. There were some interesting comments on that. I remember there was a complaint that... Um, Del and I were going to host it. The idea was we were going to um, kind of reach out to a mixed community. So we have one native person and one um, French woman who is just kind of outside of American culture, although she's very familiar with it, but she's kind of outsider looking in. Well, she's married and, to uh, a native American too. Or is he? Yes, he, exactly. Yeah. Yes. He, he's mixed native American and African American and, and white. But I think that there was a complaint that she and I were the same gender and somehow it was just too many female voices on air. Well, not uh, only that, not only that, but remember they said they couldn't understand Dell because of her French accent, which was just absurd because oh, yeah. you could understand her perfectly. And in a, in a town and in a community where there are so many people who come in from the university that have, quote, foreign accents, it was just a silly argument. I was really, that's when I really became more, even more discouraged with the, the station itself. I mean, we did continue on with Blooming Out for a few years after that, but I never quite, it never quite felt the same. No, and, and I just get the sense that there's been probably a lot of these institutions started in Bloomington over time, and it's just somebody in the right position of power takes an action to shut it down like they did. You know, Blooming Out has really changed. You and Carol are obviously no longer there. I think that's a great loss to the community, but also changes have happened on campus to the GLBT Center. I, I think we had talked recently about out the um, the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender oh, yes. student group. Um, maybe people would like to hear about that too, or have you already covered that? No, we haven't. We haven't really covered that. Um, well, yeah, it's now called the LGBTQ plus culture center, which is an improvement over the name. Yeah. Um, I think a lot. Um, yes. but it, it, you know, out was one of the very original student organizations on any college or university campus. It started back in the seventies. That's and amazing. I know it was amazing. And then it continued on and it became actually became a separate student organization under the office, you know, student affairs and student services at IU. And it was a standalone group and they elected officers every year. I was their advisor for 17 years. And that's not because, wow. well, they had to vote on me every year. And every year there's yeah. like a new student, a, a, you know, a new group of students that came in and voted for me. Um, yeah. It's not like I was just hanging on there. Or <laughs> no, absolutely not. But at the same time, if you're there for 17 years, you're someone who is creating institutional history for students of, of various gender identities and various sexual orientations. They know that they're not the first ones to be on IU campus and to struggle with whatever particular issues they struggle with as a result of homophobia. And well, I hate to say homophobia because it's not really a fear of gay people so much as this hatred. 
um, like they had, they know that other people have gotten through and gone on to do great things. And without you there, how do they have that history? Well, they don't have it anymore. It's pretty much been destroyed. Um, it, um, it, you know, it was a very viable organization when, uh, you know, it usually was the students that were already kind of out when they came to campus. Obviously, it was kids that were firm in, in who they were and, and had a lot of self-confidence and believed in who they were. And they weren't afraid, but the, and so they usually became the officers. And, um, and I didn't vote on any of the officers. I had nothing to do with the elections. It was student run. And I went to their meetings when they asked me to come to their meetings. Um, and they were self-funded mm -hmm. and they existed for a really long time. And they were, you know, sometimes there were memberships up to like 50 students would come to their meetings. Wow. And then we had um, uh, Miss Gay IU, which was the one of the few, if not the first, I'm not sure it was the first, but drag show on a university campus. And it became part of the national drag circuit. Now, people who aren't into drag shows, that isn't going to mean anything to them. But if you are, it does. It was it became part of national competition and they brought in a lot of money. In fact, we held it a couple of years in the IU auditorium. Well, also, the out students were responsible for. Uh, actually bringing the LGBT center to campus because they met with let the, the university officials, they met with legislators in the state of Indiana. And um, they said, we need to have a center here. Well, the whole idea was that the center would serve the students. Um, and they picked a leader for the center who yes, was gay. Yes, was very brave for being gay and being out and all that on campus and dealing with discrimination However, um, out was seen as a threat to the purpose of the office, rather than being a, you know, companion uh, event organizer and, and turning to the students for what they wanted. And so yeah. eventually out was destroyed. They used Miss Gay IU to destroy out. They um, charged them, overcharged them. Um, out went into debt and they said, well, they can't have, you know, they can't exist as a student organization until they pay off this debt. Well, students, yeah, students shouldn't have to pay a debt like that. They shouldn't have to, they were lied to, but it's, those are all things that, you know, you really can't prove because a lot of it was by phone. Um, and, and, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, there wasn't any ill intent there. The students just didn't pay attention and they weren't responsible. And that's hardly the truth. Um, so you punish future generations of students by taking away this resource that's, and this history of existence that's been there for 17 years. That's exactly, that's exactly. Um, and now when students come to campus, they don't even know out ex ever existed. They don't really have any place to go. They go to the center, but I don't know if you remember the center, but it really doesn't do a lot. They co-sponsor things. Yeah, I had actually heard some complaints from students too that they felt that it was um, that it was oriented to a particular vision of, um, if I can can use this term, queerness, that was very male oriented and seemed yes. to leave out female and women. Women already have a layer of discrimination on us just by virtue of being female, and it's a different experience. I'm not saying it's it's easier or harder, but it's different. And it, I heard several students say that they didn't feel that they were welcome there. Uh, especially those who were more radical and who challenged kind of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And people of color. Yes. Uh, and definitely non-Christians. And yes, non-Christians, because uh, both the director is a former, uh, well, he's a minister. I don't know if he still is, but anyway, he was. And 
Um, then he hired the person that he hired as an assistant is also very active in, you know, Christian religion here and church here. So I've heard from students too, that they're pretty devastated um, about what's happened, but most of them have not ever heard about, and the history's gone. It's such the a shame. It's just gone. I have history, which I, um, I managed to get from a few people that were involved. And um, I've thought about writing the history about, but you know, I have to think about that. <laughs> it takes some time yeah. to do that. It would, but it, it might be worth it too, because I think that there's this institutional movement to erase how all these things got started that the um, GLBTQ, I'm not sure if I'm getting the full name of it correctly now. I know it was the GLBT Student Center when I was on campus, but that history of, of activism and, and of standing up to power and saying, we need this for ourselves. They erase that and act like these centers are just a gift to quote diverse students to kind of support us and they're not they're things that we created out of our own initiative and and yeah you took them over but certainly the case of the first Nations center it was supposed to be a center that was oriented around students not oriented around um uh people who like to dress up like indians or who have hobby interest in american indians it was meant to retain and recruit students and support them when they got there or faculty members who have studied native americans and then kind of adapt the culture and act like they are Native Americans. I, I saw I saw a lot of that. That kind of, um, I found that very disturbing. I uh, did. I can't imagine doing that with any other ethnicity. I think if I decided tomorrow that I was going to, say, be Jewish and started dressing up like um, an Orthodox Jewish woman just because I like Jewish culture, I think people would probably find that offensive, rightfully. But it seems like there's this blind spot for appropriation of American Indian culture. Absolutely. It's been, it's been, uh, the appropriation has been going on since I can remember as a little kid. So I know it's been going on for a long time. What I, you know, yeah, historical, historical memory. Uh, it, it bothers me. It bothers me a lot in this, in this town. Um, it's, well, you know, they always say that the winners write the history books yeah, and, you know, Indiana, true. Indiana, Bloomington, it's still a very white patriarchal system. I know that women are emerging, people of color are emerging more and more and more. You don't hear anything about Native Americans for the most part, that's for sure. Um, but I still I just can't imagine what it would feel like as an American Indian student walking into that center. And the first thing is I'm, I'm greeted by a person who likes to um, powwow dance, but is not American Indian. I know. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I don't know. That's fine. I don't think you're supposed to. Aren't, aren't you supposed to be invited to be in the powwow dance anyway that you can't just join in and dance? No, um, but there are certainly people who will in, well, I mean, you can certainly join at a powwow, you can join in a dance anytime, but as far as specific dances, often they are, do require some kind of spiritual training and cultural training. And I, I think that person at IU did get that from somebody, but there, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that is the best person to speak for American Indians. It just means he's someone who was invited to, to dance. Right. And to right. And it really can't provide that real basic foundation of identity. That's a good way to put it. It's just, um, it's not there. There's not that resonance. It's not a lived experience. Right. Well, you know, I'd like to, I guess we reminisced a lot and talked about a lot of things that are wrong. Speaking about things that are wrong, <laughs> what did you think about the whole, uh, that whole scene with the Covington, Kentucky Catholic school boys? And did you see any of that? Have you read about any of that? Yeah, I actually, um, I watched all the videos that I could find of it just to see, because I, I think yesterday there sort of started to be this pushback 
um, particularly from the conservative media, to try to refocus what happened and weaponize it against um, American Indian people, against women, against various people who were complaining about this. Um, for those who, well, I think probably most of your listeners saw what happened, and, and they can see with their own eyes exactly what happened, the disrespect from the Covington kids towards not only American Indians, but also I think at one point in one of the videos, they do a fake haka dance, which is a, a sacred Maori dance. It's not something that they would have permission to do for Maori people. They shouldn't be doing it. Um, they're doing that. They're doing tomahawk chop, all this stuff. And of course, there's that one kid who's the center of everything who um, who gets into the space of Elder Nathan Phillips and gives him that awful smirk that I think is women we've seen a hundred times from men who thought they were able to put us in our place. And it's just sickening to watch. And it's even more sickening to see the spin that's being put on it now that uh, somehow Elder Phillips, who um, is greatly respected in American Indian country, has done a lot for American Indian youth organizing. Uh, he's been there to support tribes that were not his own. He was at Standing Rock. And he's uh, a veteran. He's, he's a veteran. veteran. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, you know, I think when I saw it, I was immediately appalled and I thought, you know, where, where are the adults here? Where are the chaperones? It must mean that they uh, either approve of what's going on or think, oh, well, kids will be kids and they're not going to stop it. I realized there was a lot going on there, but I, you know, I've been reading on Facebook, all these comments by people who are trying to rationalize or justify or say, well, they're just kids. They need to learn. No, they've learned all the wrong messages in my opinion. And, um, they were there to protest with, alongside the anti-abortion protesters, which tells me right away they were there. And I feel like, you know, I've always been, uh, you know, pro, pro-abortion, pro, just pro-health care for women. Do what you want. Leave, leave us alone. Let us make our own decisions. Um, right. And um, so the fact that they were there to, to protest against me, against my rights, um, so they were there anyway, protesting. And as far as I'm and they and they wore the, the you know, the Trumpster hats um, and uh, they were already there with a kind of message and attitude. And so it's no surprise to me that there was conflict. Now, I know that then the black, the black Israeli people, what do they call black Muslim? Black Israelites. It's kind Israelites. of a cult. Yeah. Well, that's not the majority of black people either. No, I mean, they're a very unusual cult and they hate black women, especially. They're a very hateful group. I don't they're understand. Very- I don't understand why. Where were the police? Where were chaperones? Where were adults? Where were officials? There was nothing breaking any of this up, standing in between, trying to, you know, offset the confrontations that were going on. No, and I've heard so many rationalizations of that too. But I don't know if you saw in how much of the videos you, you had a chance to watch. But there's all of one them. You can actually okay. So you saw the priest who is present at the back of the group, standing behind the kids at one point in that. Yes, and does nothing. No, I it just I just was appalled because and no, there were no apparently no police or anything there. Now maybe there wasn't any reason for them to step in and there be any violence, but. It seemed like there was nobody around uh, preventing anybody from doing anything. It was, I don't know, just a terrible no. conflict. What I'm more upset about than the fact that this group of boys would do this, because that actually doesn't surprise me, given, no. the, given the temperament of our country right now, is that um, the comments that I'm seeing everywhere of trying to rationalize what happened. But doesn't it make you wonder why are people so invested in rationalizing it? Because 
there, it seems like the first impulse of the internet was this absolute repulsion to what they saw. And then uh, a couple of days later, conservative commentators make comments. The uh, main kid, the smirking kid puts out a, a press release, a kind of a statement that's been written by his parents PR firm right. and people are, Oh, well, you know, we've got to give these kids a chance. We didn't see what we thought we saw, but if my eyes tell me something, I think I can believe that over some guy on Fox news telling me what to think. Um, but yeah, people are retrenching. And I wonder why they're so invested in thinking that a white kid could not do wrong to that native American veteran elder. And I, yeah, I was, I was extremely, um, I guess, proud of, Nathan for just continuing the beat. He just continued yes. the drumbeat, no matter what was going on. And I, I to me, that that sent a, a very powerful message to me. Um, but you know, there's there's something to be said for if you see something and you believe it's wrong, believe it's wrong. Don't let people talk you out of it. No, and if you, I, I just wish that people would question why is it that they feel so compelled to excuse behavior of these kids, because I think if, um, if Mr. Phillips had been any, any other race and he was a veteran and he was participating in a religious ceremony, which is what he was doing, he was singing a prayer song, the AIM song, and would you justify it in the same way? And I just wonder why people are so quick. Um, I had several Facebook conversations yesterday before I finally shut it off with um, people who were mocking him, saying he was a provocateur. Um, one person used the phrase trying to put his engine magic, I-N-J-U-N, right. on, on, on these kids that he was um, somehow violating them. And I just wonder why there's this need to villainize an, a Native person once again and, and try to make us the wrongdoers in our own story. Absolutely. And not, you know, these kids, they aren't, they're talking about them like they're just kids. Well, they are, what, high school kids? They're not little tiny kids. In fact, little no. tiny kids probably wouldn't even have acted that way. But, um, they're old enough to have manners. They're old enough they to are. have respect for other people. They're old enough to be criminally charged as adults. And I've had clients who were sent away for life for crimes that they committed as children of that age. And yet these kids get a free pass because of the color of their skin. Absolutely. It's yeah. Well, moving on to the legal system. What did you think about the Supreme court decision today? Oh my gosh. Um, I was going to ask you the same thing, too. I guess you beat me to it. I'm just <laughs> horrified. I, I think that the Supreme Court's dodging the ultimate issues uh, and that they're using an excuse that there's not going to be some kind of harm in the interim if they don't maintain the stay on the government's action and in, in banning transgender soldiers and sailors and airmen and everything else. But just uh, it's very frustrating to see what the consequences are of this administration well, as a lawyer, as a lawyer, how do you read what I read is that they are not preventing Trump's order to go through to ban transgender people from serving, but they still haven't made a decision. And then, but I, the other question is there's like, what, 4,000 something, 4,000 transgender people already serving. So what does that mean? What's going to happen there? Oh, yeah. And, and it is. So the case is still in the lower courts. What was being requested before the U.S. Supreme Court was that, hey, while the lower court is working out if this is constitutional and while it's winning its way for the courts, because we know ultimately the constitutionality is going to keep being challenged until it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the U.S. Supreme Court at this stage is just looking at 
hey, can we, um, are we going to allow the lower court to enjoin the government from enforcing this ban before its constitutionality has been decided? And they're saying, you know, we're going to go ahead and we're not going to allow an injunction against that ban being implemented while we're figuring out if it's constitutional. I think it's a serious problem. It's really harmful. Um, did you did you get a chance to read the military's new policy on transgender um, service people? No, I haven't. I wanted to read that. I haven't gotten to that. What it, What is their new policy? Uh, well, and I, I kind of just skimmed it, so I don't want to go into things I may not remember clearly. But basically, um, there were some exceptions where you could be a transgender person who doesn't have um, what they're calling gender dysphoria and who's not going to require um, a sex change surgery. You could um, you could be someone who's already serving, who is transgender, has had an operation, but has been, they call it, stable in their biological gender for three right. years. Um, there were some other exceptions to that. Um, you could serve, but you have to serve under your biological sex. It was just a very gender essentialist view of of soldiers and, and sailors and very disturbing. How much of how much of all this do you think has to do with actually people being transgender? Because, you know, a lot of people you, you just can't tell. And no. I mean, I don't go through life thinking about what someone's gender and what their presentation is anyway. But obviously, there are people who worry about that. Um, but how much of it is money? Like they say, well, if people are going to transition, should we have to pay for their transition? I don't know. I wonder if that's even really the issue or if it's just something that is such a matchstick. It gets his, his base fired up. Oh, we're going to keep trans people from serving in the military. And it's exciting to them. They feel like they're striking back. And I wonder if that's not the point of it more than anything else. Because my understanding is that it wasn't the military that came to um, the, the executive to ask for this. It was something that he sent to them that he wanted to do. So I have to I guess I wonder if it's not political in nature. What are your thoughts? I'm not sure. I've wondered about that. I know that some people simply don't understand what transgender is or means. They just don't understand okay. it. And they don't really bother to um, investigate or perhaps even seek out trans people to talk to them to find out. Um, I think it's something that scares people. I don't know why. Um, you know, like it's it's much more involved than changing your hairstyle or whatever certainly to a trans person but if somebody uh isn't comfortable in and who they are what difference does it make what decisions they make to correct that for themselves i don't understand why people are so afraid of that but i think it's all wrapped up in sexual identity anyway because americans not all americans certainly but americans seem to be so terrified of sex and sexuality and I think that's yeah. why, why gayness and lesbians just terrify them and I don't know why if you're comfortable at, in your own personhood and who you are why do you care what you know somebody else is not and they want to they're doing something different yeah absolutely and you hear um the right wing they talk constantly about religious freedom individual freedom but it's only freedom for them to discriminate against those of us who are not Christian or who are not straight, who are not um, identified with stereotypical gender roles. And it's a really horrible definition of freedom. Freedom for me is not the ability to oppress somebody else. It's the freedom to be who I want to be and to have the relationships I want to have that fulfill me in my life, to have the work I, I want to have to fulfill me. That's freedom. It's not the this need to control someone else. No, it's freedom is, is actually very simple. It's supposed to be, you know, the right of 
pursuit of happiness and a, a decent life and a good life. And I, well, you know, I blame, I, I just blame religion. <laughs> I always have yeah. uh, ever since I was quite young. Um, I think, you know, I have heard a lot of Christians say, well, we're discriminated against as Christians, we're discriminated against. And I find no. I worked with someone who said that a lot. And uh, I finally said one day, well, maybe it's because you're wrong. <laughs> and you're, you're mean to other people and you discriminate and you judge people by whether they think the way you do or not, rather than listen to why they believe what they believe, that you're not yeah. open-minded. And I said, until, you know, until you can be open-minded and you can be fair and you can accept other people who don't think like you are, then you may feel like you're discriminated against because you're going to be kind of shoved aside by those of us who are more open-minded. Well, yeah, well, I just can't go to somebody and say, um, you're discriminating against me because I'm discriminating against you. That makes no sense. No. Just, but that's exactly what they argue. Do you think some of this fear has to do with, it seems like there's this real insistence in some parts of the country on gender as being a real thing. It's um, binary. There's men and there's women and there's no no variation. If you're a woman, you've got to like these things. If you're a man, you got to like these things. you got to act these ways, dress these ways. It's kind of this essentialism almost. I'm not going to say almost. It is essentialism. Mm -hmm. I think people live with so much fear. And I think that's one reason they turn to religion. And then religion, I think, instills fear. There's no way you can be quite good enough. I'm not I'm talking about Christianity. I'm not talking about all religions. But I pretty much am not a, a, a supporter or follower of any organized religion myself. Because I like to do my own thinking. And I think when you're raised to believe in something, um, they say, well, you have to have faith. Faith in what? You have to prove to me that God exists. I don't have to prove to you that he doesn't. Um, and if you, if you kind of grow up with a fantasy, I, I kind of equate it with believing in Santa Claus. And then all of a sudden you find out, well, Santa Claus isn't real. It's the spirit of giving and sharing that's real that we do for about five days every year. Um, <laughs> yeah, very limited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and everybody gets in that great open giving spirit. And then the rest of the year, they're nasty to each other. Um, mm -hmm. If you grow up with that kind of fantasy, then what is there to hang on to? You know, when people say, well, um, I have to thank Jesus or thank God for that. No, you have to thank yourself. You're the one that did it. You know, um, and your parents are the ones that brought you into life. You know, I, I'm just... I'm just much more secular than that. I just don't see. And I think when you live with that kind of imagination and fantasy all the time, then what is real? What is there to hang on to? I think there's a lot of fear that goes along with something that you can't prove. I, I, you got me thinking about this too now. And, and it, it kind of brings me back to what we were talking about earlier with the Covington Catholic boys. That these kids were, they weren't just in DC together by accident. They weren't there to go to the museums. Their school, which is a, a nonprofit, is run by the Catholic Diocese of that area, actually bused them there to go to this specific rally. Um, so they're, they're using the system where the school is tax exempt. The school is able to get vouchers, money from the federal government that comes out of the public school system to so-called educate these children. And then they're militarizing them. They're sending them out there that you're going to be warriors for for this belief, you're going to go out there and you're going to do this thing for us. You've got to be in this march. Um, this is a good thing to be. How do you feel about about that? Um, well, I don't like 
all these private schools and charter schools anyway. Now, I have to say, my mother's family was Jewish and Catholic. And part of my my mom's family went to Catholic school. My mom didn't send me to Catholic school. She said she didn't want me to have to put up with the with the nuns. And she wanted me to be better socialized. So she wanted me to go to public school. And I yeah. thank her every day for that. Um, I don't like, I do very firmly believe in the separation of church and state. And I think that goes for education. I think a child should be educated and socialized into the world. And if people have a religious belief, certainly they can teach their children that and separate from, you know, from the school system. I don't like all this money being funneled into all these charter schools because a lot of these kids, the, the charter schools are not passing like state accreditation. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of the students are coming out. They're not terribly well educated, certainly not socialized. They've been very isolated. Um, I know even my cousins now, they all grew up and became very successful, but that was part of um, other motivation as well. A, belief, a firm belief in education and uh, university education and having professional careers and that kind of thing. So there's more to a family than just that. But uh, I see these kids, they, they don't know much. Uh, they don't know anything about their world. And they do end up like um, like that whole school of Catholic boys. I don't, uh, they're, they're being uh, just, oh, inundated with a certain philosophy. And it's, I don't know how they're going to do very well because the world is changing. All you have to do is watch some TV, watch entertainment shows, watch the young shows for young people. And I'm talking about the kids in there in junior high, high school, even grade school. They're very integrated and they're very open and they're all um, friendly and fun. And yes, there's lots of music and dancing and, and, and social interaction and yeah. the world, we are not going to go backward, no matter how these people want us to go backward. We are not going to go backward. And I hope you're right. Well, they're trying, you know, they're trying to undo all the laws that, that those of us that grew up in the 40s, 50s and 60s and into the 70s worked so hard to establish and move forward. Civil rights laws and uh, laws around uh, women like Title IX for, for, stu for women students. Um, they're trying to undo all of that. And they've been trying to do it for, you know, a few years. Like it kind of really kicked in back with, I think, Reagan. And um, it's very discouraging. But I don't think the young people are going to stand for that. I just don't. We're too worldly for that now. Our country is too worldly, whether people like it or not. Now, living here in Indiana, you know, it feels like um, that it's they're winning. And I don't know about where you live. I've actually, Mrs. Louisiana, I've been to New Orleans. <laughs> that's uh, well, you, you've gone to the um, <laughs> a different part of the state. I mean, New Orleans is always, it's problematic. It's got a history of deep segregation, but at the same time, it had one of the first powerful black middle classes in, in any large city in the South. And, and they were very powerful at one time, although the segregation was certainly still there and was still just as awful as anywhere else. At the same time, there were people who were building power there. Um, there's certainly been a tolerance. Um, I hate that word tolerance, but I think that's really what it was, was kind of a tolerance of people of varying gender and sexual orientations, not necessarily acceptance, but there is at least, you know, a place of kind of, um, you know, not actually killing people, not actually keeping them out of jobs. Right. Exactly. So it's different. Um, but, Northern Louisiana is deeply racially segregated today. Um, so, for example, where I live in Zawali, it's a small town, 
there's um, it's mostly American Indian and black uh, and there's some white families here too uh, but there's still a, an area of town where most African Americans in the city live and it's called literally the quarters that's what they call it around here um, in a derogatory way uh, it's very segregated there's on a daily I can't go through a day without hearing some kind of remark that says people of XYZ race are like this, that, or the other, and it's always worse than the person who's talking. Um, there's huge interminority racism here as well. And it's um, a very difficult place for women to find work. It's just a, it's just a different world from Indiana. I felt um, discriminated against in some ways in Indiana, but it was a very different um, kind of, I guess, covert. It's Northern racism. Resistance. Yes. It's Northern racism, which is, in some ways worse. Um, I mean, I, you know, I was stunned when I came here and I know I've been here like 40 years or something, which is a shock to me because I was never going to be here that long. What I've realized, well, what I've realized since I retired and, you know, years ago, I used to do a lot of traveling. So um, I came and went a lot and on vacations (laughs) and things like that. But now I, since I retired and I kind of kicked back and relaxed and thought about it and thought about this place. And, you know, it always did. When I was at IU, when I was in Bloomington, I've always been, you know, I guess, kicking ass, so to speak. Um, (laughs) Fighting fighting all the things that are wrong. Yeah. And I paid the price for that. I paid the price for that at IU um, and paid for it in the community. And the thing is, the more you protest here, um, even those people who say they're also protesting the same issues you are, they discriminate against you. You know, you can't say too much too loud. Um, Absolutely not. And and I think that there's that, um, I, I don't know, kind of old boys way of talking. Of, for example, might be one of your listeners. I um, was on Facebook the other day. We were talking about the Covington situation and someone had posted, um, this person had posted that, well, it's just um, because that part of Kentucky, they're Appalachian, they've got ignorance from Appalachian ignorance. So I, I responded to that and said, you know, wait a minute, that's not true. This is about white supremacy. It's not about what region they're from. And actually Appalachia has a very rich history of interracial communities that created whole new cultures out of different fibers into these new fabrics. There's a history of union organizing of strong women who went out and did things that women didn't do other places in the country. You can't say that this is about white supremacy, not about being from Appalachia. And uh, their response was, oh, well, you need to go read this book that was written 30 years ago, and then you'll really understand how the country's cultural folkways work. Um, <laughs> so I told, I told him, you know, I'm, I actually am a cultural anthropologist, thank you, but here I can give you a book list if you want. But it was just that, um, that assumption that they always, if they're talking to a woman or a person of color, they know more than you. And you just don't understand. If you could just see things through their eyes, you would get it and you would be quiet and shut up. I know. I On Facebook, I mean, I do make comments here and there. And usually the only time I get a nasty comment back is from a white male. Um, <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> I've had a couple, well, there have been a couple women who kind of challenged what I said. And then we, we would communicate a little bit more and it would kind of come to, you know, okay, whatever. Um, whether it changes anybody's mind or not is really beside the point, but they don't stay nasty. Um, no. And the only people I've been, and I'm not one to block people as a rule, just because they disagree with me. If they're nasty, I will block them. And the only people I've ever blocked have been white males because there have only been about three or four that they just kept going on and on and on and on and then start getting kind of, you know, surly. 
and you yeah. know that comes through even in writing and yes. I finally just blocked him because I'm not going to deal with that you know I will talk about it and disagree with you you can disagree with me all you want to but yeah. you know as far as well you know when I first came here I had never really lived in the Midwest and I heard all these Kentucky jokes people would always tell Kentucky jokes and um I thought but I don't, and then they'd say, well, that, oh, he's a Kentuckian or she's a Kentuckian. What do you expect? And I thought, I can't tell the difference yeah. between a Kentuckian and a Hoosier. <laughs> I really can't. They all seem the same to me. And then there's that old joke that Hoosiers are just Kentuckians who didn't make it to Chicago. Um, <laughs> I've not heard this. Yeah, well, well really, yeah, there's, no, but it's, it's just a place where there's so much naivete in Bloomington. I think there's a lot of people there that mean well, but you know, meaning well, can sometimes be very dangerous. Um, Especially if you're not willing to listen. Because I don't know if you have this experience, but sometimes when I've done activism with with women friends or um, with friends who were gay guys, we could have these interchanges where we disagreed, but nobody had to be a bitch about it. Exactly. And it seems like you deal with a white, straight male. Not all of them are like that, but there's certainly some of them who are just so threatened by the idea of having to listen to you in the first place that is it's very toxic and again they, um, i don't mean to say that's all of them i have a great deal of male friends they're good people they listen they don't do that stuff but there is something that enables some some men to take that role mm -hmm. you know i have to mention something that happened to me i've never had well when i moved here my house was burned down by the clan that was my introduction oh my gosh. yeah that was my introduction to indiana um but wow <laughs> Yeah, I was a student. I mean, I came here. I ended up here because of Franklin College. My grandmother and my dad went to Franklin College, so I was third generation. Otherwise, I never really spent any time in Indiana, and no. I, so I didn't know anything about it. And I, I was renting a house as a student, and mm -hmm. I rented the upstairs to some friends of mine, and they were a mixed-race couple. And uh -huh. the Klan really didn't like that. Well, at the time, Johnson County, and which is where Franklin is, was the seat of the Klan and also the John Birch Society. Um, oh, no. Yeah, well, I didn't know any of that, right? No, I mean, <laughs> I that had to be just alien to you. The police department, the fire department, they were all like Klan. Now, it's changed. It's not quite like that, but I'm still not comfortable in that area. Um, I wouldn't be either. I mean, you really just don't know. It, that's. But I, I just felt like it, you know, I felt very alien. What I realized is that I, um, all the friends that I've really made since I've been in Indiana have all been through the university and are all people from somewhere else. Um, really can't say that I have, I only have one, one close friend that I really met and is from Indiana. And um, we've kind of lost touch because we're old. <laughs> and, oh no. Well, we're old and that just happens, you know, but anyway, it, um, it happened. Uh, that I guess talking about violence and having things happen to me was um, about a year and a half ago, we were at a restaurant and we were backing out and I had a bumper sticker that had Hillary Clinton on it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we could go on hours about why Hillary was, was maybe not the best candidate in the world, but um, she was certainly better than what we have. And um, all of a sudden I was getting in the car and all of a sudden there was this guy behind us parked behind us in a pickup truck he started yelling at me he was yelling you bitch it's people like you we need to get rid of and I turned around and I thought is he talking to me I thought he was fighting with somebody you know 
Yeah. And then he pulled up behind me and honked his horn and said, you vote for that bitch. He went on and on and on. Well, I got in the car. Well, there were some people next to us who kind of looked like bikers. Uh-huh. And he he and his like, girlfriend, wife, whatever, they started walking back toward this guy. And he took off. And I don't, I don't know what they thought about it. They asked me, they said, did you know him? I said, no, I didn't know him. And I just got in the car and we took off. And I thought, what a weird thing to be like a kind of assaulted, verbally assaulted like that out in public. Um, yeah. And that was, that, that was before the, the election, right? It, so it was a couple of years ago. But that's really stayed with me. That, I, nothing like that's ever happened to me before. No, but it, it does. It seem to you like that kind of thing has increased the last few years. The oh yeah, oh yeah. They feel like they have the right. You know, one of the things that, that that people seem to be drawn to about about Trump is they think, well, he says what he thinks, blah blah blah. blah. He doesn't mind telling people off. No, he's rude and crude and disgusting and racist, and and he has no manners. And what he thinks is evil. He has no class, so, no yeah. character, nothing. He's amoral, and just because. You can be a smart ass you, just because you can mouth off. That's not yeah. what free speech is supposed to be about. <laughs> no, and it, he's a habitual liar. When you take that oath of office, you have a duty to to be honest with people, to take the public service seriously, to serve the public, to be a civil servant. And and he thinks that this country is for the benefit of his businesses. Uh, but his it's so frustrating. His base are often the people who are going to suffer the most from his policies. Yeah, but they are smart feel, enough to know uh, that. Well, and they feel persecuted, but then at the same time, they're out there persecuting people. Yes. Well, that's that's kind of the way they live their lives. You know, I've just always said that evolution is not even across the board. And that that not everybody, not every family, not every group has evolved at the same rate. And I think we're seeing some people that just haven't evolved into the world. I mean, we have a world culture and they're trying to, they're isolationists. They want... United States to just be this little isolated place. Well, I don't know how they think. What about trade? How are they going to sell their products? You can only sell so many products to yourself. <laughs> exactly. Especially if you have no money because you have to spend all your money on your medicine and your food. Or because you've laid everybody off. Yeah. <laughs> and Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, it's just insane. It really is insane. I have a, a my cousin's wife. She's, she's um, a CPA and a lawyer. And she's my age and retired. And she actually got off Facebook and all media because she is so upset with what's happening in the country. She said, well, when I post on Facebook, I'm really just talking to the people who think like I do. And the rest of the people, I just don't want to hear from them. It just upsets me too much. Um, And I said, well, you know, I have to. It's my way of, of maintaining sanity, I think, is to continue, you know, communicating with people. Yeah, at a certain point, you have to draw a line, too. Like, there, there's certainly people who I I don't share political things with coworkers and things like that because it's, no. it's a fairly, no. you know, Louisiana is very conservative. But at the same time, there, who wants to log onto Facebook and see people being attacked because they're gay, because they're of a different race than the person who's attacking them? Who wants to get on Facebook and see that? So I usually mute those people so I don't have to see it. Yeah. It's just a sanity um, saver. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's but it's very discouraging right now, and and I, I really think I don't know if we've hit rock bottom yet. I hope so because I just don't feel like, you know, the country can stand much more downslide. I, it's just devastating what's going on, and I hope we, 
I don't know. Maybe 2020 is a positive thing. We, I, we just have to get out there and do what we can, I guess. I think so. But I think it's also a chance to ask ourselves, you know, so we know this is a country with a violent history. We know this is a country that has done good things and done evil things, absolutely evil, unexcusable things at times. But we have a chance to re-envision what we're going to be at this point, And we can either go back to that, to the hate, to the exploitation of people, to people scrapping for any little bit of food or whatever they can get against other people, poor people against black people who are also poor. Uh, it's just, we can choose that or we can choose something different. And, and we have to make that choice now, I think before the, the country completely falls apart, we have this chance. And, and I just hope that the younger generation is, um, is more aware. Well, one of the things that I find so discouraging about people is they say, well, this is not who we are. This is not who, what America is. And I, I have hmm. to always say, yes, it is. Now you're seeing the, the dirty laundry of this country. You're actually seeing it. This country from. has always been violent. Um, what was done with the, the Native American populations is a disgrace. What was done during slavery is a disgrace. So this is who we've always been. Many of us were trying to pull us out of that. And now you all are trying to drag us back. Yeah, well, there were so many positive things because you think we started off as this this colonial country that's sitting on top of genocide that is dependent on genocide for expansion, that's dependent on lying and breaking treaties to to grow. It's dependent on slavery so rich people can make power for us. It's dependent on women not being legally human. It's dependent on, on gay people not being able to be open in any kind of way and having to suppress who they are. It's dependent on all these things. It's dependent on exploitation of of Chinese labor and later Asian American later uh, exploitation of, of Mexican American and other Latina labor. And, and yet at the same time, somehow we were able to pull it to a place where everybody can vote. Everybody can assert their rights. Everybody has free speech. Everybody has a bill of rights, which at one time wasn't the case. They're able to pull it this far. And that's a wonderful thing. And then it just seems like, I don't know if my generation took it for granted too much. I don't know what's happened. I think my generation did, because if you think about it, Many of the people that are in the government now are my age, <clears throat> and then some of them are older by 10 years or so. Um, and I think, I think Americans get lazy. You know, we want our shopping malls and we want our movies and all those things, and there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong with any of those things individually. But you've got to focus on the bigger picture. You've got to focus on, on, on people. You have to think about what your government is doing. And people, it's not what, it's not, you know, it's one thing to sit back and say, well, the government's not doing this and they're not doing that. And they're, well, how are you helping? Exactly. Are you contributing? Are you helping your community? Are you helping your, your city? Are you, do you ever reach out to anybody? And you don't have to run for office. You don't have to be a politician. Uh, politicians are a certain, a certain breed. They really are. I have lots of energy for one thing. Um, <laughs> but I, what I wanted to ask you before we go is I want to ask you the demographics of your student population now that you're teaching. You know, um, I have kind of a weird student population because I'm teaching the pre-law program. So I would say probably my classes um, are a little bit less than half African-American. Um, there's a very small handful of American Indian students um, and they're mostly female. Oh, that's interesting. Good. Fact, uh, last semester, I had two in-person classes and only one male student in them, which was interesting, too, because it makes you wonder if there's all these pre-law students who are female. Why aren't we seeing more lawyers at, at upper levels in firms who are female, too? Why aren't we seeing more female politicians? Well, 
never mind. We know the answer is sexism. Exactly. What is the demo? Well, sure. what are the demographics of the university there? Um, I am not entirely sure because I don't think that they're tracking them in a way that's necessarily helpful. So the application, for example, doesn't have a place where you can list yourself as multiracial. Mm. There is a place where you can list yourself as American Indian or Alaska Native um, or Native Hawaiian. But I think um, there's no tracking of who is actually tribally enrolled versus who's an Elizabeth Warren kind of figure where they've got some distant ancestry, but it's not something that is lived for them or where they've been involved in American Indian organizing in any way. So I don't really know um, exactly what the numbers are in an accurate way. But the, um, the university is over half female. I, I do know that. I think they track that one pretty accurately. Um, well, one more question I have of you. I always like to tap my legal friends' <laughs> minds about <laughs> things. Um, what do you think about the, the census question, about having a citizenship question on the census? Well, does it seem to you like it's kind of designed to make sure that people who maybe don't have citizenship don't answer the census, so there's no data on them? For... Exactly. They're left yeah. out of the figures, which hurts the communities financially. Absolutely. And I, I think it hurts them, too, when they come to you, um, times you say, hey, you know, these gerrymandered districts are really oriented around keeping um, the power of the Black or Hispanic vote minimized in the, the most greatest possible way so that the governing party can continue to govern. And I think that it, it destroys that data about, okay, well, how many, how many people of this background are in this area and who are we oppressing in a way? It, and also it changes things for crime statistics too, because if you don't really know how many people are from a particular racial background in an area, you can't show if there is different treatment by police just all the numbers are skewed and thrown off and it just seems very um, bad. We should have good data for our country. Um, I think Thoughts. probably a lot of people will just not respond to the census. Um, yeah. Do, um, are, are the reservations, the Native Americans on reservations, are they included in the census? They are included in the census. And actually even um, people who don't have reservations are, are usually included as a census group. So for example, um, here in, in, uh, near Zawali, there is a community, the Chachapachi tribe of Ibarb, and they've got their own census designation. So the census does track people who are in, say that they're enrolled in that tribe. And this, there's a region here where they're supposed to focus on getting um, census information from, from people here. So yes, absolutely, that is tracked. Uh, that's good to know. I've always been curious about that. Um, well, Becca, we've talked for a while here. <laughs> I know, It's, Carey, it's probably, always um, wonderful to talk with you. Um, it's wonderful to talk with you, Helen. Thank I, you so much. I miss our I miss our our interactions on a more daily basis that we used to have, but it's good to touch base with you. And it's I'm I'm so pleased that you're so successful, and I know you're doing good works everywhere you go. Well, I had some good mentors to help me out, and I certainly count you. And I know you didn't call me to to flatter you, but just out of the <laughs> sincerity of my heart, you and Carol were wonderful mentors. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us to, uh, today on our Outside View. I've been speaking with Rebecca Rial, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation because everybody is welcome to join in, friends, family, and even our enemies. We like to hear from you, but don't text me any nasty messages because I won't respond. Just nice messages. <laughs> thank you so much, Becca. Thank you, Helen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.